0: Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today I am thrilled to welcome a very, very special guest for the final interview in my week of wine and roses. That's right, I have the enormous privilege of welcoming to the show Broadway legend Kelly O'Hara. Kelly O'Hara portrays the leading role of Kirsten Arneson in Days of Wine and Roses, and this conversation was recorded between the show's off-Broadway run and the announcement of the Broadway transfer. Her many other Broadway-starring roles include appearances in South Pacific, The Pajama Game, Kiss Me, Kate, The King and I, Bridges of Madison County, The Light in the Piazza, Sweet Smell of Success, Dracula, Follies, Nice Work If You Can Get It, and more. She's also appeared off-Broadway in Far From Heaven and King Lear, at the Met Opera in The Hours, The Merry Widow, and Cosi Fontute, and on screen in The Gilded Age and The Accidental Wolf. And now, without further ado, here's Kelly O'Hara. Yeah. So, I'd love to start us off by asking, how did you first become interested in
1: performing? I watched movie musicals. I fell in love with movie musicals like Julie Andrews in Sound of Music and Shirley Jones in Oklahoma and Carousel. And it made me want to to sing. Um, so, for, But I didn't have a lot of theater. I didn't even visit New York until I was 21.
0: Right. And was there kind of a recognition of your talent when you were growing up?
1: Well, I didn't really even try to sing until I was about 10. But my mom tells me that I sang in a talent show. I remember it, but she tells me that she stood in the back and thought, oh, my goodness, she sounds pretty darn good. So after that, I just sort of um, started singing all over the place in town and at church and in the school musicals. And I sang with my sister. And so then, yeah, it totally became part of my identity that I was sort of the singer in town, you know.
0: And were your parents supportive of you doing that as
1: a career? um they were they've always been supportive i think that it scared them a bit but uh they let me do it and they supported me and now they're they're so so proud and they've been yeah by me every step of the way and what was the studying
0: training process like for you
1: well um i started to take sort of simple voice lessons when i was a teenager but I always had a goal uh, to go study voice with a woman named Florence Birdwell at Oklahoma City University. And um, so that's what I did. I went to college there and I studied voice with her for four years. I ended up becoming an opera major um, just because that's the way my voice works. But, uh, and then after that, I moved. I didn't go to opera grad school. I instead moved to New York and I went to Strasburg uh, Theater Institute and studied the method. And then I started working.
0: Yes. And what was the process like of moving to New York, of making the decision? And
1: then? That was really scary. It was scary for everyone. I didn't have a job. I didn't even have a place to live. I moved to New York um, in the fall right after I graduated college with three other girls. Uh, they all were trying to do the same thing. And we, we stayed on a friend's couch for a while. And then we looked for apartments until we finally found someone who would rent to us. And we got an apartment and we all just started auditioning. Um, It was a very, very hard and scary time, but it was also filled with a lot of excitement. And um, we were naive enough to just think we were having fun too, you know.
0: And were you auditioning even while you were studying or did you train first and then start auditioning?
1: I was auditioning all the while. I... um, I was taking, I was auditioning all fall and taking classes at Strasbourg. And then when I, I, I got a national tour, which was my first big job of Jekyll and Hyde. And at that point I stopped going to classes and just went on the road.
0: And was there an audition song that
1: you used a lot early on? Or? Yes. I used to sing, uh, somebody somewhere from the most happy fella. Mm. Um, and also an old song called where or when, um, And then, yeah, those were my kind of my big beginning songs. Yeah.
0: And what was the process like of sort of finding your niche in terms of the type of roles you would be going up for early on?
1: Well, I I started working pretty quickly because um, I was going for ingenue roles, you know, and so I was the right age, whereas some of my friends had to wait a while because they were more character type driven roles. Uh, These days, hopefully that's a little bit, uh less defined as it used to be because it used to put us in boxes quite a bit. and but I was lucky to be able to work early and um but I was I was doing things that weren't necessarily good fits for me, like Jekyll and Hyde and things. And so when I it was pretty early on that I met um Ricky Ian Gordon and Adam Gettle, and I started singing that more um, art song classic version of musical theater. And so then I really started to find my way after that.
0: Right. And what was the kind of experience like of being out on tour with Jekyll and Hyde?
1: Well, I it, it was really a wonderful experience. It was a it was newly directed and choreographed from the Broadway show. Um, so we had Jerry Mitchell choreographing and David Warren directing. So it was reimagined. It was a very fun process. And then I met some of the best friends of my life um, that had been my best friends. I've, in fact, I saw one of them today. <laughs> um, so we toured for... Uh, I ended up switching roles um, during the tour. I was the understudy and then ended up moving into the role of Emma uh, while the tour has gone on. But the Lucy on that tour... Is Sharon Catherine Brown, who I just did Days of Wine and Roses with. So it all comes sort of. We keep meeting back up again. Um, but it was uh, it was actually real really fun because I was young. I didn't have to pay bills. I could see the whole country. We went. We played every state in the union almost. Wow. And um, so it was the perfect thing to do when I was a young person. I could save money and and um, and and then learn like you know really get a good a good bit of practice at doing a show. You know.
0: And was is there a certain point in your career, Leon, that you would identify as being sort of discovered or mm-hmm. starting to feel kind of more established as a Broadway actress?
1: Well, I think the way I I hear it almost told to me is people assume that Light in the Piazza was sort of it was my first Tony nomination. It was the first show that that I had a starring role in that did well. But right before I think I would have to um give the credit to a show called Sweet Smell of Success, because I did have a role in that. And even though the show didn't do well, it's because of that role that I got put into Light in the Piazza in the first place. And so everything sort of, I always say work begets work begets work begets work, begets work you know, so you have to look back at the thing that led you to the thing that that got more attention. Right. And
0: I know after Jekyll and Hyde, you did follies on Broadway, and what was it like to be working there with lots of theater veterans and older actors and all that?
1: well, i I had joined Jekyll and Hyde right toward the end of its long Broadway run, and it was uh it was it was ready to close, and the energy was was uh, not what I expected. And so when I went to do follies with these amazing veterans of the theater and film, Um, doing a Sondheim piece with Sondheim there, you know, often there and and in their room. It was, it was like, I I often think of that as my Broadway debut because it was just so special. Um, These, these theater greats really uh, that many of them have now passed on, but Polly Bergen and and Betty Garrett and uh, March champion and all these incredible Donald Sadler. I just, just, just incredible people. So I just got to sit there and watch and listen and learn. And I've stayed really close with many people from that cast, Judy Ivey and Nancy Ringham and Aaron Dilley. And anyway, a lot of great people. And and unfortunately we just lost Treat Williams. Um, But so we all have been in in touch recently.
0: I'd be curious to know too about Sweet of Success, which we were talking about. And how did that part first come to you?
1: Well, that's a really interesting story. Um, when I first moved to New York before Jekyll and Hyde, I got a job out at the downtown Cabaret Theater in Bridgeport, Connecticut, doing Phantom, the the Yeston Copet Phantom. And there was an actor in it named Eric Michael Gillette, who amazing. And I did, I I went on to work with him many other times. But he he said to me, and this was the beginning of my career. He said, "I'm doing a workshop of a brand new musical written by Marvin Hamlish." Called Sweet Smell of Success, and I think you're perfect for the girl. And so he gave me his whole binder, the score, the script, everything. And no one had ever seen it at this point; it was a brand new show. And like two years later, the auditions came open, and so I auditioned for the role. Wow. And so I knew about it; I was ready for it; I was excited about it. And um, I actually crashed that audition because I was—I couldn't get an appointment, but I knew that it was for me. I, I was like, "This is my role." So. I crashed the audition. I got in, I got the part. And
0: what was it like to work with the great Marvin Hamlish?
1: Well, uh, it was wonderful. Marvin is a, a genius, generous person. Um, I miss him every day. He uh, when, I, when I crashed that audition, I didn't know that it was him. I didn't know exactly what Marvin looked like. I had never seen him. And so it's kind of a funny story in the beginning. I was so glad I didn't know him because I would have been so nervous. But he was there, and he let, he's the one that opened the door and let me in. And uh, we, we uh, went on to do symphony concerts together over the years. He was always so kind to me. I like to tell the story that years later, without even checking in with me, he called my parents once just to check on them during a tornado in Oklahoma. He, he got their number and just said, I'm I worried about you. He's just a good guy like that. That is nice.
0: Mm -hmm. And so your um, working relationship with Brian Darcy James has lasted from then until Days of Wine and Roses. And what do you like about sort of co-starring with him?
1: Brian is such a wonderful, talented person. I mean, he is just I I saw him first in The Wild Party off Broadway, and I just thought he was extraordinary. Um, He just took over the whole stage for me. And when I got to work with him in sweet smell of success, I just felt so lucky. I even told my mom at the, at the callback, I hadn't even gotten the job. And I said, I don't even care if I get the job. I got to have a read through with Brian Darcy James, you know, it just felt like such a gift. And, um, and so when we did sweet smell of success, it was so much fun, but it closed early. And so, um, I went right from that to do Piazza, the the first workshop of Light in the Piazza that summer. And so I asked Adam to write Days of Wine and Roses for Brian and for me Ah. because I wanted to work with him again. And it took 21 years, but we just did it.
0: (laughs) It was so wonderful. I was lucky enough to
1: see you in it. Thank you. (laughs) And why do you think
0: that Sweet Smell of Success wasn't able to attain quite the success on Broadway that it should have had?
1: You know, there were many, many things going on. It was it was right after nine eleven. It was a very tough time in the in New York City to sell a dark show. It was a it was a sort of a dark themed show, a dark looking show. I also think that um, you know, the movie, the the famous film was famously, like Days of Wine and Roses, a very small cast. It really was about four people like days of one and roses is really about two people with just a, a couple of the father and the daughter around them. And, and sweet smell success was similar. And so I wonder sometimes if trying to make a big starry musical out of it with big dancers and, you know, big groups of ensemble. And, you know, I don't know if it, if it kind of diluted the the main story. Um There's a lot of, a lot of thoughts about it, but I, I was so young then that I didn't have the sort of the knowledge and the awareness that I do now of of what quite went wrong. You know, I wasn't on the inside of it as much as I'd like to like to have been. Um, you know, there were a lot of a lot of things going on. And it's too bad. I mean, I think the score is beautiful. I loved doing it. It was a it was a real honor. You know, it was my my first big orig, you know, originating role. <laughs>
0: And I know I recently um, interviewed Adam Gettle, and he said that he barely watched almost the movies of Light in the Piazza and Guess of Wine and Roses. But what is your sort of opinion on that? How often do you kind of revisit the source material?
1: I I never do. I make it a point to never. Um, The only time in my career that I've had to do that is I did a production of My Fair Lady once, but I had to learn it in nine days completely. And so, boy, did I put on Julie Andrews and I just went you know, on the, the record because I, I just didn't have time. But I think the point in rev- reviving something or, or going back to material that's already been done is to bring yourself to it. And I think if you, you can go to the source material and really study that and see how it makes you feel. But I think if you go back to other performances of it, you you're influenced too much um and I just I worry about doing that only because I want it to be new and fresh and so I don't want to repeat what's already happened
0: and you've done many shows that take place in kind of a specific era of the past specifically the 50s and all that and what kind of attracts you to that era
1: Um, you know I don't know if I'm attracted to it as much as it's it seems to be somewhere that I fit well, you know, um, either vocally, you know, physically. um, But I also was raised on film of that era. My parents are movie buffs and they, they, and and their, their parents before them. And so I was raised on those, those old films, movie musicals. um, And I think somehow when I, as a kid, it just started to seep into me. Uh, that that's kind of what it meant to be an actor. Um, I do love playing contemporary things absolutely, but there's a, a a comfort for me in in visiting that those those general decades in the in the middle of the century yeah
0: And so early in your career, would you ever suggest changes or things like that in the rehearsal room and do you do that now?
1: I always do it now. <laughs> um, but I do recall, doing it some as a younger person, I think, I think it takes us all, you know, we'd like to all say that we were ready to go right when we started. But the truth of it is, is that I'm still learning every day and I'm 47. So it's, you never stop learning what you can do and how you can use your voice. Um, I'm definitely getting better at it. Um, I, I, I look back at some of those earlier things, um, and and wish that I had used my voice, like in Sweet Smell of Success, more. But I think that I really learned to start to be more of a collaborator in the process when I started working with with Bart Shear. Wow. Because he he invited me in to do that. And that was Light in the Piazza. And um from then on, we did South Pacific and King and I and Bridges of Madison County. And by that time I just I had a I had a different idea about myself in the room. Because he had been, he had made space for that.
0: And is there a show that you feel sort of contains the most
1: of your input in that way? Um, I think it would be a combination of of Days of Wine and Roses and and Bridges of Madison County, uh, mostly because those are new shows. Um, and so I was able to sit there with the writers and the composers and say, hey, what about this? Or what do you think about this? But also take the input of them and say, no, keep trying this. I'd like to, this to work. And then, of course, I'd come around to it. Um, but in the revivals, um, I certainly brought as much of myself and my voice to it as I could. But uh, you know that material is not going to be changed on the page. It's just my interpretation. So I think the new musicals that I worked on more recently, Bridges and, and Days of Wine and Roses had more of my input that actually stayed in the material.
0: Right. And a sort of exception to that, I think, is Kiss Me, Kate, where yeah. there were some changes made to the book and to the lyrics. And what was the process like of sort of revisiting that with Amanda Green? And
1: Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. I sort of um, I, I forgot a little bit about how much we we worked on that and I, they did. I mean, Scott Ellis made a beautiful room of open conversation, but Amanda really came in with um, also very open, very, she received all that we had to say, but she came in with really strong and wonderful ideas um, of how to update as much as we could an older book that kiss me, Kate has and the score, uh, the the lyrics. uh, I mean, and, um, and so That process was also a very positive one as far as feeling like I could use my voice and have ideas. And, uh, again, Amanda and Scott were both very receptive and open to that.
0: And are there golden age roles that you've done that you found to be kind of problematic in that way of being not very feminist? You
1: know, I... I went back a little bit later in my life. So in my mid mid thirties to do, I did carousel. Um, but here's, but I, I, it, I, I have an interesting relationship with that show. I mean, it was the first show I ever did. I also have an interesting relationship with that subject matter, which it's really hard. And we of course cut the show way down because it was more of a staged concert. So we didn't have some of the real problematic lines. But, you know, you can take the opportunity to when he's lying on the ground and it, it, she, says she, I, she says that don't excuse it, you know, when he hit, when he, she's saying it to him as he's dying. Well, I, the, I had no other choice but to sort of hit him on the chest and show that I didn't accept it. I didn't accept it, but it didn't make me not love him. And the, the difficulty with that sort of subject matter is that we don't want to look at it, but it doesn't mean it doesn't exist And so sometimes telling these stories um, bring the people who are suffering to the front to, to get help, um, to, to talk about their situations. So um, I think that is problematic though. I think that there are a lot of these shows. I mean, Kiss Me Kate, certainly problematic, uh, you know, and and that was hard because as much as we wanted to change, you couldn't really change uh, the Shakespeare, brush up your Shakespeare. And, most of those lyrics are very misogynistic, you know. So we we had those problems. As much as I, my character, grew and tried to be more feminist, that those you know those those songs were still you know offensive in their own way. So um, I think looking back on on the things that I've done, um, I've done I've done my best to try to bring a, a, a sensibility that is more in this day and age you know, to try to, try to, um, modernize it as much as I can.
0: And what has the process been like throughout your career of avoiding sort of being pigeonholed into just ingenue roles or just a certain type of theater?
1: Well, you know, I think what, what I've tried to do, but it, 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 it's in the eye of the beholder because I don't feel like I'm the same type of performer, but people that see me do. And, you know, it's, it's been amazing to me that someone will still have me in their head as Clara or someone will still have me in their head as, as uh, Nellie Forbush. But I've, I've been trying to do so many things. And one of the things I try really hard to do is when I do one kind of thing, the next thing I do is very different and then very different and then very different. So in order not to stay in, let's say, sort of your typical musical comedy or musical theater, you know, after South Pacific, which was really important to me and to my career, I went and did King Lear at the public, you know, I wanted to say, Hey, I'm, I want to be, I'm an actress, you know, I'm an actress, I don't have to sing. And I'm an actress with hopefully some substance, you know, you're you're trying to, you're trying to show yourself that more than anything else. To be honest, it wasn't necessarily for my reputation, but as much as teaching, telling myself, was well, showing myself what I could do. So I, um, I, I did that, you know. And then, then I tried to go back and do something else that was um, positive. And I remember wanting to do Kiss Me, Kate because it's, it was so fun because I had been doing something dark before. So it's in those ways that I'm not only feeding my own, you know, not being pigeonholed problem but I'm also feeding my own creative spirit to keep it diverse, you know? Right.
0: And with King Lear specifically, what was the process like of getting into that sort of Shakespearean rhythm and understanding the language and all of that?
1: Yes. I, I, uh, I, I went down and spoke to, you know, the the people, the public, and, and I wanted to audition for a couple of things. And we finally found one that, that would, work for me and and I auditioned for King Lear and um I worked with Barry Edelstein who was down there and um I I just learned I wanted to immerse myself in um John, John Douglas Thompson was in that production I just wanted to be around people who were were, were real um Shakespearean treasures you know who really knew what they were doing and I, I did myself a, a great service there. I just watched, I learned, I took notes, I, I did coachings. Um, and then I ended up having a really, really fun time, um, you know, surprising, surprising myself that dramatically, I, I loved that sort of way into drama, you know, as opposed to it needing to be, you know, I didn't feel like it was archaic. I didn't feel like it was um, too difficult. You know, I, I felt like it was, I was starting to really find the truth in it.
0: And has there been a musical role or a play role that you felt has been especially difficult to sort of tap into as an actress?
1: Well, I look back on it now and, and feel like I I know how to, I would know how to do it a little better now, only because the older you get, the more free sometimes you can feel. But when I played Clara, um, there were a couple of things. I, I came to the role kind of late. I had been playing Franca in a few different iterations of the show. And I didn't have a lot of time, but I also had researched so much about Clara, so much about her accident, her blunt trauma injury, her, the age she was, how many years had passed since her, her accident. And I, it was hard to play Clara in some ways because Clara wasn't a realistic character. Because if you study that sort of thing realistically, you don't really get Clara from the Light in the Piazza, um, and so we. I had a, I had a job to do in that I wanted her to be authentic. I wanted to pay respect, um, to her, and people like Clara, but I also was singing in a musical, you know. So it was, which is very doable, but it was. Um, I was being noted. I had lots of direction and I have lots of notes all the time and um Stephen Sondheim came and gave us a bunch of notes about what he wanted to see and we did a bunch of previews with those ideas and they didn't work and it was a confusing kind of role for all of us to figure out they it wasn't we didn't quite know what she was until we finally found her
0: and what were some of the if you don't
1: mind sharing kind of things you tried before the version that we all know and love well, you know, I remember this specifically. We were in previews, and Sondheim felt like we didn't see enough of Clara's uh, different, differently abled uh, characteristics. We didn't see. We saw someone who was pretty typical in the beginning of the run of Light in the Piazza, and he wanted to see the ways in which Clara embodied her um, her injury. You know, her her mental. Uh, Changes. And so I did, I did many shows. We, we went into rehearsal. We went back the next day and started to improv and study different kinds of physical, um, physical characteristics of a person who would have had that kind of, uh, brain injury. And we started to implement them. I started to uh, act much more like a child because we had this arrested development situation. I I pulled my dress over my head. I grabbed grabbed myself between the legs. I I had my hands in in different shapes, which the hands stayed a little bit. They stayed. But I think doing a few shows like that, they realized that that's it was too bold. It was too bold a choice. The choices were, they, we wanted to go bold to see where we could, what we could find. And I, I felt very free, but I wanted to also be very respectful of what those realities would be. You know, I'm not a person that has had a, a, a brain injury. And so I wanted to be very true to that. We, we talked to people, we had advisors. Um, I think what we came back with, we we took some of that out and what we came back with was, a little tension in her hands, a little, uh, you know, a little um, looking upward a lot. You know, I mean, I think, I think I let Clara just be who she was in the moment and, and just tried to leave myself out of it as much as I could.
0: Yeah. And what was the process like to finding the very unique relationship with Victoria Clark that Clara has with her mother and that sort of protection and maybe it's too much or maybe it's not enough?
1: and Yeah, I mean, I think Victoria Vicky's uh, portrayal of Margaret is just one of the extraordinary performances that there's ever been. I mean, I think she invested so deeply in Clara and me and Kelly as a person that we became and we still are extremely, extremely close. And um, I think, I think on stage that closeness, that sort of um, codependent relationship where the mother needs the child just as much as the child needs the mother and maybe more at this point in the child's life. The child is not a child anymore. She's 26 years old. So I, I think that what we had to build outside of the, uh, off the stage was just as important because we had to trust each other. We had to trust each you know, She slapped me across the face every night. Um, she really did. I mean, it wasn't a stage slap. She slapped me And it it had to be one of those things where we were glued to each other physically at times, or we were screaming at each other, you know, and so you, you develop a trust with that kind of person, especially if you're going to do something uh, for over a year, or in this case, we worked on it for almost five (laughs) altogether, you know, so, um, or I guess three and a half altogether. So it was, um, it was just, it was just a beautiful, close relationship.
0: And with a show like The Light in the Piazza or like Days of Wine and Roses, that's such a kind of emotional roller coaster. What is the process like of sort of separating your personal life from that that you have to tap into on stage every
1: night? Yeah, you know, I had a lot of people, especially, uh, I, I, well, let me go back to Piazza. Piazza was hard for me because as a, a person, as a performer, one thing Clara never allowed Kelly to do was to plant her feet. Clara was not a a, a girl with with her feet planted. I'm just going to say that again. It's it's more of a symbolic idea than an actual idea. And so playing her left me Kelly very that that whole time I was playing her, it left me a little uneasy in my life. I was young. I was I was taking it all on. Whereas cut to. 21 years later or 20 or 18 or whatever it has been. um, I, people ask me if I'm okay. And the thing of it is, is I leave everything on the stage. I'm not connected to Kirsten Arneson in that way at all. She's so vastly wildly different than I am in many ways, although alike in some ways and the safety that I have inside Brian Darcy James on that stage. Um, wrapped up in his arms and his safety, we we sort of just, it's the most free I've ever felt working on anything. And yet it's the most challenging story to tell. But for some reason, uh, I think for both of us, the these characters sort of just exist and we just kind of get on the train and live, live inside them. I don't know how to explain it any other way, but I can come out of that show, I would come out being a little emotional, a little heavy, but not, not depressed, more feeling gra- grateful and overwhelmed with, with satisfaction, really.
0: And I'd be curious to know too if becoming a mother has at all influenced your portrayal of that role specifically, or other roles that you've approached since then.
1: I think becoming a mother uh, has influenced everything I've ever, I've done since the day Owen was born, um and I've had two children, Owen and Charlotte. You know one thing that happens in art and in what we do is we can either let go and find the deepest and most joyously creative parts of ourselves and make art or we can overthink it we can overanalyze it we can overwork it we can overtrain it we can over um, stress it and what happened to me when i became a parent is it just wasn't the most important thing in my life anymore it is absolutely necessary in my life that I have creative a creative outlet and, and work and and um, artistry, but all of a sudden, after Owen was born, things became. I was gentler with myself. I just trusted, and experience helps that too. You know, I've I've added years to my life and years of experience. I consider every show I've ever done to be another master's degree. You know, mm-hmm. uh, but I. I feel like they they made me let go because sometimes I'd be walking on stage having just nursed one of them, you know, or just pumped, you know, or just gotten off the phone and one of them's crying or laughing or telling me about something and I have to rush back onto stage. You, if I, If you can't overthink it, you end up falling more deeply into it, in my opinion. I think when we try to put ourselves into it before we reach the stage, we're giving ourselves a false sense of the truth of it. Whereas if you just leap into it, you fall deeper. Yeah. The
0: ending of Days of Wine and Roses is very interesting when uh, Kristen feels sort of unable to come back to her husband and kid. And what was the process like for you as an actress of sort of justifying why that is, even after having taken so much time to recover or after the character has?
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, I think the important thing to to remember is she's not been recovering. She's only been sober for five days when she comes home. One of the ways Kelly makes it make sense is that this is just today. Today she can't stay, but maybe she'll try again in another five days. Maybe she'll try again. My, my idea is that she probably does because she's a person who wants to be with her child. She desperately wants to be with her husband and her child. So I have to believe that, that anybody at any time can finally do it. They can finally get sober and come home. But at the end of our show, Kirsten is not going to do it. And um, it's very hard for me to justify it as Kelly. and of course, like I said, I like to bring so much of myself into this, but the other thing I can't bring into Kirsten is that I'm not an addict. I'm not an alcoholic. You know, I'm grateful for that. I'm very grateful for that in my life, but I have known them deeply and and intimately. And so I know the struggle. And so it's not for me to judge when she runs out of that home, you know, why, how dare she, because I'm not in her position. What I know is that there are people that are struggling, struggling so much that they leave their own child and telling this story is important because we had so many people come who have succeeded, who are sober, whether it was three months sober, 36 years sober, who felt Really validated by this story, you know. I didn't do. I almost. I could have done what Kirsten did, but I didn't. I'm home. I had a father and a grown son come and say, "This meant so much to us." They were crying. They said, "He said my wife. She didn't come, but she's 36 years sober, and this this could have been her story, you know. But she said, st- but she came home. So I have you know my 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 way is of looking at it is twofold." I do that ending to honor how hard it is to honor the struggle that people have, especially for those who win and the the deep belief that maybe she will someday, she will win.
0: That's fascinating.
1: Thank you for sharing that.
0: And so I'd be curious to know, too, since we're talking about sort of audience response and all that, as a Broadway star and popular actress and someone who has a lot of fans and people who admire you, what is the process like of sort of dealing with that separation between the person on stage and the audience and yourself and the audience sort of off stage?
1: Yeah. You know, I'm. You know, I love to do solo concerts and and talk about my life and talk about my journey and let people in. But I think overall, I, I say this a lot to students. Um, listen, I want to work. I want to be, I want to have enough, enough, I guess the word is cachet to get good work, to be able to make a living, to be able to have a good fan base. But I've always been, even as a young person, my teacher used to say this. I've always been more about the craft than the celebrity. And so I can tend to be pretty private. And, um, it's funny to me because I, especially because of my children, I'm I'm private for their sake, um, because it's not, I don't want to make a choice for them to put their lives out on display. They can do that when they're older, if they, if they choose to, but I so value my life away from work because I need the balance. Um, And so I have that and I have this, but if it was, if it was all in intertwined in one thing um, and they do overlap, of course they overlap. I mean, my kids come with me to work and, you know, I bring my work home, but I, I just, I want there to be a balance in my life. And so, you know, there've been times when I'm just exhausted because I've got babies at home that, you know, I run out and I do a very quick signing at the stage door. And I know that that's not always the great, or sometimes I skip it because, or I've had to. And I know that's not always the great thing because we do have a a, a responsibility, one that I'm very proud to have. But what's very interesting is I found myself after Days of Wine and Roses really wanting to talk about the work and the show, really sticking around and and sticking around and talking to people for half an hour. Because it was an interesting conversation to me about the craft, about the story. What I don't want to do is is talk about my private life, and and I'm just that's me. That's who I am. I'm not. I'm on social media, but it's I'm, I, it's not much about my family. Maybe a little bit once in a while, but um, that's just who I am. But that's that doesn't mean that I judge anybody else for what they do. We're all made up of different stuff. But my priority is is not so much. And and I'll tell you exactly why. If you know too much about me, Charles, and we're talking about a lot of things, but if you know too much about me on social media, then you may come to one of my stories and not believe the character because you know too much about Kelly. Hmm. But if there's a little mystery in Kelly, then you can sort of believe her more in Kirsten. You can sort of believe her more in Francesca and Nellie and Anna and Clara um, and I want to keep it that way. I want there just to be a, a little bit of mystery between the actor and the the celebrity. Yeah, that's very interesting.
0: And so you mentioned early on your Strasbourg
1: training and
0: all that training, and do you still apply that to every role that you do, or how has that sort of changed over time?
1: It's interesting you ask that, because it, studying at Strasbourg was studying deeply the method, and, you know, the method sitting in a chair for a couple of hours to really access the deepest parts of you was very useful to me as a training tool, but I learned pretty quickly that it's, it's I think personally for me, only for me that it's much more valuable in a film setting when you have time, when you prepare and then you really have to immediately come up with, with what, what the exact moment is that you're playing, because that's TV and film are about moments, whereas theater tends to be about a journey. And so for me, um getting my body loose and ready and free and open to the things that I carry inside me and when I say things, I mean the emotions and the the history that I carry inside me. um if I'm free and loose and stretched, I can walk onto the stage and what I liken it to is, Board the train and I will be ready to tell that story. I'll be ready to go on that journey fully without having, um, without having, uh, gone to the depths of, of my darkest times to, to find something. Because for me, the story itself, when written well, accompanied with my, my freedom and my experience is what's going to make me successful, hopefully.
0: And kind of a lighter question, I remember the night I saw you in Kiss Me, Kate, you got your finger caught in the door, and <laughs> it leads me to ask, have there been other sort of onstage mishaps like that? Or
1: Wow, you're the first person I've ever talked to who actually witnessed that.
0: <laughs> wow, yes, yes, I remember that.
1: Oh my gosh, that was crazy. I didn't, you know how you go, you go into shock, I didn't even feel that my finger was slammed in the door, but I do remember will and somebody else coming out and setting it free and then Paul Gimignani just going with the baton and we were back into the song and we were back and I've since grown my fingernail back so you'll be it's all good (laughs) Um, but it definitely fell off um there have been little things but nothing quite that bad I mean I've definitely been sick doing shows so I've had to run off stage and be sick and run back on I've definitely um you know lost a shoe or banged I banged my arm into the set during Days of Wine and Roses, um, really hard, and I didn't in the show. I didn't even really know it until my whole arm turned black and blue. So, you are sort of in a a weird um, other space while you are doing a show. So sometimes you you don't even clock what's happened. You know, I mean, I definitely had a situation in South Pacific I talk about often where um, uh, after I am in this the bathing suit, I put on a pair of shorts to do the entire wonderful guy number and someone had left all the stick pins in the shorts from that day's work of uh altering the shorts so i had these little tiny pins poking me the whole entire number so i was bleeding and yeah um you know so you have those things but at the time i was just like just go on the show must go on you know
0: and so you mentioned you had this opera training, and then sort of pivoted to musical theater. And then, when did the decision come to go back to pursuing some of that opera at the Met? And-
1: you know, I I think that it was just in the back of my head all my life about getting back to something like that. Not not doing it often, but just seeing where my voice could go. My voice was changing after I had kids. It was it was becoming um, a broader thing, and and um, my theater sound was, it was all changing and shifting. And I was working so much at Lincoln Center that I was right across the way from the stage door. And, um, Bart started, Bart Shear started d- directing over there and doing some operas. And, and I remember he, he introduced me to Peter Gelb at the Met. And I, I said, you know, I don't know if I have the guts, but I, I think I'm going to try to audition for something. If, if you think there's something that would be appropriate. And, and he, he suggested a, um, one opera and I, I audition, I sang, I went on the stage and sang for it, but it ultimately wasn't, it was, it was a little too low for my voice because I think in musical theater, people think I, I'm a lower singer than I am in opera. I was in college. I studied, I was a color I did queen of the night and, and Linda de Cheminine and those types of things. And so um, I think that when I finally, he came back to me, Peter Galvin suggested the Merry widow I thought, well, that's an operetta. So that's very doable because it's um, now it's not mic'd except for the, the spoken lines. But but it's more like I have lines to say, I have a character to play, you know. Um, and so that was a thrilling. And I think it went pretty well, well enough. And so then I thought, well, maybe, gosh, wouldn't it be amazing if I could do a language opera, you know, because I studied all of those in college. And so he came back to me with Cosy Fantutti. Which I loved. Oh, that was very nerve-wracking. I'm glad I did it once, but probably won't do it again. <laughs> and, and then um, and then the hours came up and I I didn't think I would do another one, but the idea of doing a brand new opera by Kevin Putz and Greg, P- Greg Pierce with with Renee and Joyce, I just thought you'd be crazy and it scared me to death, Charles. I mean, I had to have pep talks with myself every single day entering the building at this age. I was like, what am I doing? Why am I torturing myself like this? But I, I said, just stay the course, stay the course, just keep working, keep working. And I remember having to say in the room one day, I was so nervous and kind of falling apart. I remember saying out loud, I will arrive. I will arrive. And I did. I mean, you know, I got through it and, and we, we had a, a successful opening and, um, I'm so proud of it you know it's i don't considering my, consider myself an opera singer i i have not put in the time or the the perfection that opera singers do i mean their work ethic and their study is immense and i would never claim to be anywhere near that level but these one-offs that i've been really given the honor to do have been incredible gifts
0: and have you found that vocally it's more challenging to sort of sustain the number of performances you have to do with
1: an opera than with a musical? Well, you know, we only do two a week, right. which is extraordinary. And so you can rest your voice. You know, granted, there are no microphones. And so the singing is much more challenging. The way I sing, though, on on a Broadway stage is not that much different. It's just that I can lay back more because I'm mic'd and because I'm mic'd when I speak, because it's really the speaking that makes you tired even more so, or at least for me. So we can protect ourselves a little bit more with the mic, but, but for, for the opera doing two a week, um, that, that gives you a chance to rest and recoup.
0: And did you find that there was any sort of, I don't to say necessarily like disdain but sort of issue in the opera world with coming from musical theater or that people were sort of skeptical of that
1: oh yeah oh yeah i felt that a lot and uh, it's probably still there it's one of the few places in my life where i just i'm able to just for the most part not care i mean it's what am i going to do i mean I, i apologize i you know i say i'm not an opera singer but I was given an opportunity of a lifetime. I I, I couldn't turn it down. You know, um, my teacher, who's now passed. I mean, she always dreamed this for me, and I always wondered. And it was one of those things. If you if you can try something, and not fall completely on your fa- on your face, you know, why not risk it? Why not try it? Because then you'll never know if you don't. And um, I mean, I ha- I've had some interesting comments. That's for sure by people at the Met. Uh, you know, just saying things that they don't really know or. Recognize as being offensive but uh but for the most part honestly i've had incredible treatment uh, especially especially during the hours it was incredibly supportive um by this time i knew all the the backstage team and the associate directors and the director it was the same director from cozy Phalam, and then the other singers i mean i couldn't have been welcomed more by renee or joyce they were just incredible to me. And so nobody nobody gave me reason to to feel less than. It, most of it was in my own head. Um, I had an occasional comment here or there, and, and that's it. And mostly it was positive.
0: And going from the Met Opera to the Atlantic Theater Company, what, what was the process like of sort of modifying your acting for those two very different spaces and...
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, we're, listen, we all want to do all sorts of different acting. Um, I, at least for me, I don't want to be put in the box of only doing one genre of art. That is the most boring life I can imagine. And so I'm not going to go onto a television set and start screaming at the top of my lungs, just like I'm not going to go into the Met and and try to whisper, uh, you know, a song. Um, it, it, you 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 do what's called of you in the in the spirit of the peace in the surroundings and so I, it's not something that i do um deliberately because i have to it just it's almost like if you were talking to someone close up you wouldn't scream in their face you would just you would change your your tone because you're it would be the appropriate thing to do for the, for the most part for most people to to recognize those types of um, interactions. And so when I'm in the in the Atlantic, and I'm mic'd, but it's the size, you know, it's a tiny, tiny black box space, you can feel so intimate. And so you feel that way. And so therefore you are. But if you're standing on the Metropolitan Opera stage and looking at 4,000 seats or whatever it is, you think to yourself, well, I want the person in the back row to hear me, you know, I want to give this story its due. And so um, you don't scream, but you you find your resonance and you, you hope for the best. You know, I, um, I tried to sing correctly and that's all I could do. I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't make myself be, have a bigger voice. I couldn't make myself be louder. I had to just sing correctly and safely and hope that those notes carried being in the range they were. I mean, Renee said often, you know, we're lucky to, cause the soprano carries a little bit better in certain ranges. You know, it's a higher tone. Um, but for the most part that's there were times i'm sure i uh, i succeeded and times that were a little bit um not as clear and uh and that's okay that's okay
0: and so whether or not you would want to name a specific example for this question what would make you turn down
1: a role um well if i had if i felt like i had played that role out like if i hadn't if i had found Meaning that type of character, if I feel like I've done all the study I can on that person, and I'm sort of finished playing her, I, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel creative. It doesn't feel like I'm going to grow or evolve. Now, I'm the kind of person who thinks I can probably find something new in everything for the rest of my life. I mean, I could go back and play uh, Anna and the King and I and keep finding new things with every different version and certainly Kirsten, I'm not done with Kirsten and I'm not done with Francesca Johnson. And, you know, but, um, the other, the other thing I, I'm not interested as much in playing, um, what I think is sort of typically what sometimes people might see of me. I don't, I don't want to, I'm not totally interested in playing ditzes or, or, um, you know, uh, judgmental, you know, uh, blonde. (laughs) I'm not so much interested in that. I want to play something that says more about, um, you know, about change and about positivity and, um, and and diversity. And so I loved playing Nellie Forbush and I played her because, well, first of all, I loved at that point, of course, it was a great role to have, but I also loved having the job of telling the story of someone who needs to change and, and does, you know, that was very important to me, but I don't always want to play Nellie Forbush, not always. Um, and I know that it's important to tell the stories correctly, but I, I would like to also be part of something else, another story that's told about a different kind of world. Um, and I might also say no these days based on who I'm working with. Uh, I say this often, I'm too old to, to be in misery. <laughs> and, I, and I know who I love to work with, and I know who I don't. And so um, that's a big part of it now for me, for sure. And then the biggest part for me is just how does this work out with my family and my children?
0: And so you play many roles that are sort of romantic leads and have those relationships. And what is the process like of finding romantic chemistry on stage with someone like Paula Sott or Stephen Pasquale or all those?
1: Yeah. You know, that's been one of the, honestly, one of the joys of my life. I I love telling love stories. I just read something where Greta Gerber, Ger, Gerwig was talking about um, Barbie and how she wants to tell more stories where it doesn't have to be about a relationship with a man or, or otherwise a love relationship. It can be about other things. And I think as we get older, we play those roles more. We play stories about motherhood. We play stories about pain and loss. But honestly, because I've been doing that, nothing has been more delicious than going back and playing a love story in Days of Wine and Roses. Now, I know that it turns, <laughs> turns sour, but the beginning is quite fun for me to go back into that world of, of just being in love and falling in love and um, to build that with someone. It does take a lot of trust because this is um, this is make-believe, you know, this is on stage. This is uh, romance on stage, chemistry on stage. You have to trust the person that you can give over to that, lean into that um, risk that on stage and know that that is a safe place. And so I've worked with just really, really good people. I mean, Steve and I, Pasquale, had known each other for well over 20 years. And um, doing bridges with him was, and I had just had a baby. And so I was especially not feeling quite like myself. And he was the most generous and and protective kind of guy. Paolo, of course, the gentlemanly, wonderful guy that we just—I just loved working with him. Brian, Brian is just such a, a beautiful, safe, strong man to work opposite. Really, I go down the, the line. I've 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 been very lucky um, to feel free and safe in those spaces, and I have. And I would be honest if I hadn't.
0: <laughs> and if you're in a long run, how do you decide sort of when to leave a shell?
1: I sort of know it when I see it, I start to feel, um, sometimes I'm not done with something, but because my babies at home or children or, or, or other obligations or another show, I have to leave it. And that's been sad too. I didn't, you know, um, but sometimes I I'm ready to leave when, when I'm, I'm, you know, if, if I'm phoning it in, you know, if I find myself on a Saturday afternoon and I'm thinking about my grocery list, I better I better watch out. You know, I want to always be diving and searching and playing in my mind and, and you know, meditating while I'm working, you know, like really going deep. And um, if I'm all surface and, and overthinking something or trying to make something more than it should be, uh, trying to go for laughs when there shouldn't be laughs, then I know I'm done.
0: And we talked with sweet smell of success about sort of why it wasn't quite as successful as it might've been. And I'd be curious to ask you the same question about Dracula and about Bridges of Madison County.
1: Yeah. You know, uh, Dracula was pretty young uh, doing that show again. um, I, I, I can't say why it was, you know, I thought all the special effects were pretty fantastic. I got to wear, you know, vampire teeth and yellow, I got to levitate and wear yellow contacts. And so I was having fun in a creative way. Um, I think maybe uh, it was just a, the big cheese factor was way too loud. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, looking back, um, I was supposed to only stay with it for uh, several months anyway, because I was already contract contracted to go do Light in the Piazza the same season. So um, I'm not quite sure why it all fell apart. Um, but Bridges... You know, there are many schools of thought, you know, again, a small, a small story, maybe made too large with a lot of pieces that it didn't need or surrounding it, you know, really a story about two people, um, uh, you know, with your very important uh, family members and the neighbors and stuff like that. But perhaps it just tried to be bigger than it was. Um, I also think. You know, for me, and and I, I was vocal about this. There were some book issues that I that I wanted to change when we were working on it. Um, I wasn't able to do the out of town performance of it because I was nine months pregnant <laughs> with Charlotte. Um, so I remember seeing it and and immediately having a lot of thoughts about certain things that I didn't think were necessary. Um, I definitely didn't think it was a musical that needed to go for laughs at ever hardly ever I think sometimes the humor is in the truth and the humor is in the darkness and in the pain and so I I was definitely against sort of the some of the silly laughs um but uh and I won some of those arguments we we definitely lost the moo from Stevie the steer (laughs) that used to come from off stage I I I begged and begged for that to get cut which it did um being a farm girl myself I I um I don't always want to make fun of rural life. And so uh, I want to take it more seriously. And and so I, I think there were just problems. I also think it opened in January in a very cold winter. And at first, if you don't have good momentum right off the bat, people aren't going to come out and see shows around that time. So uh, we struggled, struggled to stay open. But what I do know is the the life of it, the the lasting life of it with its score, has been the most incredible thing for me I still hear from people every single show I do in every correspondence I hear from about bridges we have the bridge kids the oh. wonderful fan base we have um people who love the tour I just came from Des Moines the Des Moines Symphony and I, I went out to see the bridges just this past weekend and the whole audience cheered they love the show they, they claim the show as their own so you know it's got a life it's got it's gonna live on.
0: And so, before we do wrap up, I would love to ask about, you've done a few projects at City Center at Encores, Bells Are Ringing and Brigadoon, and what do you like about that sort of process of rediscovering the show, but also the kind of short rehearsal? and?
1: Yeah, you know, some people, we're all different, and I love that kind of pressure, that energy that sort of throw it together and then just go out and see what happens. Um, I've loved, I've always loved doing the Kennedy Center honors for that reason. You know, anything that's live, you know, um, I just, for some reason that just really, it makes me nervous, of course, but there's an adrenaline rush I get almost like an adrenaline junkie. And so Encores has been especially a favorite of mine. I can't wait to do something there again. Um, My my memories of both Brigadoon and Bells Are Ringing are, are literally some of my most fun memories. It's just that, that, I love teamwork. I love when everybody has to come together and do their part and show up. And when that happens, it just makes me feel so safe and comforted and filled with with joy. And um, I, re- I really love what what Encore does. I love that that orchestra on the stage like that. Um, I know it's a lot to ask, and so you know you have to decide sort of union uh, rules wise. Do we hold books? Do we not? Of course, they don't hold books anymore. So it becomes this huge production. But there's a part of me that's like, I love it. I love it. So I do a little work ahead of time. I do a little prep. I'm okay with that. But um, I know there are are, um, differing thoughts about that.
0: (laughs) And is there a specific role that you either would like to do or would like to have done?
1: Um, My answer to that is usually I'll know it when I see it. You know, it's not been written yet. You know, I love these new things. Um, I'd like to revisit Francesca. In uh, bridges, um, but I think I think um, for the most part, just because when I did it, I was I was so I just had a child, I was very very out of it. But I think for the most part, um, I'm just really into trying to do uh, brand new things and or, or turn old things on their head. But I don't know what those would be yet.
0: <laughs> and so the last question I'd love to ask is: With such a wonderful career, what advice would you give to somebody just starting out?
1: Well, I think it's definitely um, a version of sort of what makes you different makes you stronger. Um, it's kind of, w- we fit ourselves into boxes because we want to get hired. And that's totally normal. I did it. And when I came to the city, I was I was singing in pop auditions, trying to get in shows because shows like Rent and Scarlet Pimpernel were popular and Jekyll and... and but, you know, I tell people I ended up getting Jekyll and Hyde by singing an operetta song. I sang Somebody Somewhere because I was tired of falling on my face, singing something I wasn't good at. And so I ended up singing what I feel like I am good at. And therefore I got a call back because they thought, okay, well she, at least she can sing. Whereas in some other auditions, they thought she's not even a singer. And so my point is, is that when I started to finally give over to what it is I can do, as opposed to what it is I can't do, I started to find my career. I started to meet writers like Adam and Jason and Ricky and Scott Frankel, and Marvin Hamlish to that extent, and and that's when I started to really find my roles. and um, And I think if if kids could be more confident in what it is they have to give, as opposed to being like someone else who already exists, then that's better for them. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been such an honor to
1: talk to you and meet you. And- you too. Thank you so much, Charles. I'm glad you. I'm Listeners, so sorry.
0: thank you for tuning in to this week of Wine and Roses, and I hope that you will buy tickets to the show if you haven't already. And please tune back in next time when I will be joined by veteran of New York, West End, and Australian stages, Caroline O'Connor. Caroline is about to take on the role of Lottie G in the revival of Mac and Mabel at the All Roads Theater in California, having starred in the West End premiere of the show in 1995. She's appeared on New York stages in Chicago, Anastasia, and A Christmas Story, and across the globe she's starred in Funny Girl, Sweeney Todd, Follies, Hello Dolly, Gypsy, The Rink, and so many more shows. She's also starred on screen in Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge! and as Ethel Merman in the film Night and Day. You won't want to miss that interview, so make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.